World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. It's easy to pin blame for a lot of society's ills on smartphones and social media. But when it comes to a definitive change in teenagers' mental health, it hasn't at all been clear that the tech is the culprit. So our correspondent digs into the data. And in the Cold War, CIA agents found novel ways to escape their KGB minders. One of them involved a sex toy. Our defense editor selects the best books to uncover the world of espionage. But first. On Sunday, Turkey went to the polls for presidential and parliamentary elections. In the grip of an economic crisis and in the wake of two devastating earthquakes earlier this year, the stakes could scarcely be higher for its citizens. On one side is President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, a strongman who's held power for 20 years of increasingly autocratic rule. On the other side is a coalition headed by Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, a mild-mannered candidate who had held a slender lead in the polls ahead of the election. A final result is still to be declared. And even though Mr Erdogan struck a confident tone last night, it became clear that neither man can claim outright victory just yet. This morning, the state-run Anadolu news agency said the incumbent president had 49% of the votes, compared to just under 45% for his main opponent. Turkey will almost certainly be heading to the polls again in a second round runoff. I spent my evening and night following the results from the opposition CHP, Republican People's Party headquarters, where the overwhelming expectation was that Kilic the opposition candidate, would put in a very strong showing. Piotr Zalewski is The Economist's Turkey correspondent. Some polls published in the last few days had even shown him winning an outright majority of 50% plus of the vote. Expectations were very high and obviously way too high in Mr. Kilic camp that he would walk away with at least a lead over Recep Tayyip Erdogan in the first round, if not win an outright majority. He did neither. So this result must have been a bit of a disappointment for them, right? Oh, certainly. I mean, they came into this election with a head of steam. But by the time the final or near final results were starting to come in, the crowds in front of the CHP headquarters in Ankara had begun to thin out. Okay. 
Several hundred, mostly young people, were still there, waving Turkish flags, chanting hymns and the national anthem. They seemed defiant and faithful that Kilistarolu would be able to squeeze out a win in the second round. But the mood was obviously far more boisterous at Erdogan's rally, just a short walk away from the CHP headquarters. Erdogan came out onto the balcony of the ruling Justice and Development Party uh, headquarters in Ankara, greeted by a crowd of probably a few thousand people who were chanting, who were singing. And he seemed to exude confidence. He sang with them. They sang with him. And, you know, he urged people to follow the count closely. He suggested that he could even win an outright majority in the first round. The mood there wasn't ecstatic. Some Erdogan supporters had expected him to win in the first round, but it was jubilant. I mean, they and Erdogan certainly had enough to celebrate. But Piotr, it wasn't the only contest of the night. How did the opposition fare in the parliamentary elections? They had decent hopes of capturing majority or wresting control of parliament. They certainly failed on that count. The opposition ended up with only about 220 seats in parliament and the coalition led by Mr. Erdogan and his party ended up with a comfortable majority of about 322 out of 600 seats. Under the current constitution and this executive presidency, the parliament is not as important as it used to be. And, you know, a president can actually rule the country, theoretically at least, without having a majority in parliament. But Erdogan will now be able to say that, well, we already have a majority in parliament. Now we need a president to keep the system running smoothly or as smoothly, quote-unquote, as it has over the past five years. Okay, but assuming that Turkey is headed into a runoff, what will that look like? So at this point, a runoff does seem inevitable, and that would take place on May 28th, two weeks from now. And... The reason we are in a runoff has to do with a third candidate who put in a surprisingly strong showing. His name is Sinan Oan. Uh, he's a nationalist, a former member of Mr. Erdogan's coalition party, but someone, I guess, that can be described as an opposition politician, but maybe a rogue opposition politician. And Oan secured about 5% of the vote in the first round. Obviously, he doesn't make it through to the second round. Only Kilistarolu and Erdogan do. But he might be in a position to play kingmaker. He can endorse one of the two candidates and ensure that at least a large chunk of the support he got in the first round accrues to his favorite candidate in the second. And at this point, it looks like Kilistarolu's only chance at a victory in round two would be to try to woo Sinan Oan's voters and to expect an endorsement from Sinan Oan. 
So you've seen the opposition do much worse than expected here. Why do you think that is? Erdogan's success in the first round, I think, has to do with the fact that he managed to convince enough voters that the election was less about the economy, which has been plagued by the lowest real interest rates anywhere in the world and 43% inflation, than it was about identity, national pride, and national security. You know, Erdogan, over the course of the campaign, had unveiled an array of new mega projects, including Turkey's biggest warship, its its first electric car, and a Russian-built nuclear plant. And he also did so by scaremongering. He claimed in one speech after another that the opposition was beholden to terrorists, by which he meant the PKK, the outlawed Kurdish separatist group, He accused the opposition of courting, his words, not mine, deviant LGBT groups. And some of his officials also inflamed tensions by suggesting that an opposition victory would be tantamount to a political coup d'etat. And so Erdogan will probably stick to that kind of rhetoric. And Kilistarolu's only path to victory would involve... Well, first of all, trying to capture a share of Sinan Oan's vote. And second, just refocusing the debate on the economy, which is the biggest concern of Turkish voters. There have been a lot of expectations for this election. Did yesterday's poll live up to them? This was expected to be the most fiercely contested election in recent Turkish history and maybe the opposition's best chance in a generation to wrest power from Erdogan and his party. For the first time in his career, Erdogan had entered the elections trailing his main rival in the polls, but he now appears the clear favorite to win in the second round. He's not assured of a win, and there may be things that Kilic Tarolu can do to capture or recapture the momentum, but he is now the underdog. The election is far from over. 14 days in Turkey is, you know, probably 14 weeks, if not 14 months elsewhere. So there's a lot that can happen. The next two weeks will be as tense as they will be interesting. Piotr, thank you for coming on the show. And thanks for having me. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. In America, the mental health of teenagers has been making headlines. Continues. There's an alarming new study from the CDC that found mental health among teenage girls is plummeting. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported in February that the level of teenagers feeling persistently sad or hopeless is at its highest level in the past decade. 
That included nearly three in five teenage girls, a figure double that of boys. Lots of people believe the cause is obvious. During a Senate hearing today, lawmakers called out social media companies for not doing enough to protect teens. In a recent poll of Americans by YouGov, a third said that social media is mostly responsible for increased depression among teenagers. Whether the data support that assumption is another question. Social media alarmists do appear to be right that something is wrong with young people's mental health. Daniela Raz is a data journalist at The Economist. But the international data that we've looked at doesn't necessarily tell us that phones are the primary culprit. There's a long-running tendency to blame society's ills on whatever the new technology is. But before we get into the new stuff, what evidence had there been for a connection between social media and mental health? So there are some studies that show a small correlation between social media use and poor mental health. There are even some natural experiments that find a small effect. But one drawback is that a lot of these studies are reliant on self-reported measures of mental health. Mental health is notoriously difficult to measure. You know, the design of survey questions is difficult because there's social stigma. These can be kind of nebulous concepts. And perhaps more importantly, the language that people use to describe mental health has really changed over time. And the way clinicians define mental health has changed. So people's awareness of an openness to talking about all these issues has changed. And when you're looking at self-report data on, let's say, young people feeling depressed, you aren't necessarily just measuring the prevalence or incidence of the condition. You're also kind of measuring these social and cultural factors that have changed over time. None of that is to say that self-reported data isn't relevant or meaningful. It does really matter that young people are saying that they feel hopeless and depressed, but it can just also be helpful to look in tandem at more concrete measures of mental health, like, you know, suicides and hospitalizations for self-harm, which are a bit less sensitive to these subjective changes. And so that's what you've been looking into? Yeah, so we contacted the health ministries and national statistics offices of a lot of countries, and we were able to get data from about 17 showing suicides disaggregated by age and gender over time. We also asked for data on the rate of hospitalizations for self-harm, again, disaggregated for sex and age. And over the past two decades, what you can see pretty clearly is that suicides have either slightly declined or held steady almost everywhere and for every age and gender group, except that young girls are the exception. We see that girls die by suicide at a lower rate than boys, but the gap between the two groups has been shrinking since 2003. For instance, in 2003, on average, across all the countries for which we have data, teenage girls died by suicide at a rate 60% lower than boys did. And by 2021, they died at a rate that was only 40% lower than boys did. It's important to give context to these numbers because suicide to begin with is a really rare event and more so among girls. That means that in girls, a small change in suicide rates can be reflected as a pretty large percentage increase. But nonetheless, the trajectory of girls' suicide rates, which is trending upwards over the course of a decade, is quite notable. And those are the kind of headline numbers from what you found. But what does that look like at a country or a regional level? Is it the same everywhere? So the averages that we're talking about conceal variation by country that make it seem less obvious that all of this is just social media everywhere. Some people have posited that after Instagram became ubiquitous around 2010, 2012, mental health immediately worsened and specifically so for teen girls who use the app a lot. But at least for self-harm and suicides, that's not really what we see across the board in every country for everyone. Some countries like American Britain definitely did see increases in suicides and self-harm starting around 2010, 2012. 
But other countries followed different trends. In Sweden, there was a sharp rise in self-harm hospitalizations around 2006-2007 before it plateaued in 2010 for most of the next decade. In Italy, self-harm rates were flat until COVID. And even in a couple countries, rates of self-harm hospitalization didn't really rise at all. So you could perhaps say, you know, maybe what explains this variation by country is that smartphones and social media were rolled out and used in countries at, at different times and at different rates. But even when we looked at the association between social media use or smartphone use by country with self-harm and suicide rates by country, we couldn't really find a statistically significant link between the two of them. So what's the takeaway here to your mind? We should sort of mentally sever this link then between social media and, and self-harm and suicide. Not necessarily. Just as correlation does not equal causation, the absence of evidence in one particular analysis isn't evidence of absence. Like I mentioned earlier, there are definitely some natural experiments that have implied that social media use can cause sadness and anxiety in some teenagers. There's a well-known correlational study in Britain that suggests that there's a stronger association between negative well-being and social media use around puberty. This fits in with what psychologists already know about adolescence and puberty being a time of heightened sensitivity. And of course, there are still harms that social media can cause that are not so extreme, like suicide or physical self-harm. But I think ultimately, these variations that we see across countries and populations call into question this prevailing narrative that social media is singularly destroying a generation and responsible. It seems much more likely that it's one important part, you know, one contributing factor to what is a really complex problem and individual differences when it comes to how teenagers interact with and are affected by and use social media platforms really matters. Daniela, thanks very much for your time. Thanks very much for having me. We're always trying to improve our podcasts, and we'd like your help. Whether you're a loyal fan or a new listener, we want to hear from you. Do us a big favor and tell us what you think by filling out our listener survey. It'll only take a couple of minutes. Just head to economist.com slash intelligence survey. Intelligence agencies do all sorts of things. Their bread and butter is stealing secrets, persuading people in other countries to betray their own countries and give classified information to the spy. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. But they also do all kinds of clandestine work in the shadows. Sometimes that can be things like subverting another country, encouraging a coup, trying to shape disinformation or the media environment, but it can also be very benign. For example, intelligence agencies have always played a critical role in back-channel talks in conflict situations. British intelligence agencies were critical in bringing about the Good Friday agreements, and that's often because spies can do things that are either too risky or too controversial for the more open arms of the state to be doing. The public perception of intelligence is shaped by literature and cinema, novels like those of Ian Fleming and James Bond, the subsequent movies, but also intelligence literature like the novels of John le Carre, which are darker. They present a more pessimistic, morally ambiguous view of intelligence. 
I've chosen a range of books that I think touch on the various facets of intelligence. And some of that is good old-fashioned agent running in the field, the act of recruiting someone, running them, getting them to tell you secrets. But I've been keen to show that isn't the only aspect of intelligence that matters. I've tried to cover things like cyber espionage, but also emerging fields of intelligence, including open source, the use of publicly available data, images, videos, to do what once only big, well-resourced intelligence agencies could do. The Billion Dollar Spy by David Hoffman. When you talk to a lot of current or former intelligence officers, many of them point to this book. It's about how the CIA recruited and ran an agent in one of the most difficult places possible, and that is Cold War-era Moscow, under the eyes of the KGB. He tells the story of Adolf Tolkachev, who was a Soviet electronics engineer. He provided vital documents on Soviet weaponry to the CIA between 1979 and 1985. And what Billion Dollar Spy is so good at showing is how difficult it is just to get out of an embassy and meet an individual like this in a country that is swamped with KGB agents watching you all the time. There are some fantastic details of how the CIA did this. One of my favorite tools that the CIA used was something called the the jack-in-the-box. This was a repurposed sex toy. Uh, And what would happen is you'd have a CIA officer set out in a car, perhaps with their spouse driving the car. Then they would activate the blow-up doll inside a fake birthday cake. It would pop up and the CIA officer would roll out of the car when it turned around a corner and run off to his meeting. When the KGB looked at the car, they would see two bodies in the front seat, and they'd assume nothing was amiss, that everyone was accounted for. So it's a great example of quite basic tradecraft. Tolkachev was ultimately betrayed by a mole in the CIA. He was sadly executed in 1986. But I think this is a great book on the nitty-gritty of the dangerous work of getting out there, walking the streets, and trying to meet the people who you're recruiting and running under some very difficult circumstances. Dark Mirror by Barton Gelman. The big intelligence story of the moment is about the leak of highly classified U.S. documents by a young American who was an Air National Guardsman But that leak is really small fry compared to what happened in 2013 when Edward Snowden, an NSA contractor, fled to Russia via Hong Kong and then revealed to the world that the NSA and its British counterpart GCHQ had been spying on the internet on a really grand scale. Dark Mirror by Barton Gelman stands out as an account of that episode. It's a very fair-minded, very nuanced book that is harshly critical of American intelligence and their inability to really understand why their revelations of this mass industrial-scale information gathering was newsworthy. And he shows you how bulk collection, the collection of these huge personal data sets, is so powerful and allows intelligence agencies to draw conclusions and draw findings that are far beyond the scope of the pre-internet age. Spies, Lies and Algorithms by Amy Ziegert. 
When we look at the massive Pentagon leaks of April, the way the leaker was eventually identified by news outlets was that he had taken photographs of these documents. A little bit of his kitchen countertop was visible in the background of these documents. What happened is open source researchers managed to connect that little snippet of countertop with images available from his online account. And I think that's a fantastic example of open source intelligence and how it is enabling researchers and people to engage in feats of intelligence gathering that would once only have been accessible or available to massive intelligence agencies. Spies, Lies and Algorithms looks at how that kind of open source intelligence, which we call OSINT or OSINT, is transforming intelligence gathering. OSINT in recent years has been used to identify Russian spies engaged in assassinations in Europe. It's been used to identify Chinese nuclear missile silos. It's just capable of, I think, incredible feats of analysis. To see other reading recommendations by Economist staff on subjects ranging from poker to Scottish independence, go to the Economist Read section of our website. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you're really missing out. Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.